0: Good morning, my name is Sonia Thompson. Our reading is from the Gospel of Mark. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. I wish we could record the kids headed to class so in like 10 years we could show them who they were then because the personalities that come out on that walk is so great. The eager, the wary, all that. So fun to watch every week. Let's pray together. Dear God, on this day again, we say, Hosanna, God, save us. Because you alone are the Savior of the world. And you invite us to echo and cry these to you because you want to save us. Surely blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. We come, we want to bless you and honor you. And again, we want to learn from the life of Jesus. We again offer... The passage we've heard this morning from Mark and pray you would teach us and instruct us as you alone can in your holy name. Amen. Well, again, good morning. My name is Dean Miller and I'm on staff here and so delighted you're here with us. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to the passage that you just heard read from Mark 14. In the last few weeks, we have been walking through the back end of Mark, Mark 9 through 16, as Jesus is headed to the cross, which of course culminates in this week on Good Friday. And we, joining with the disciples and Mark as his early followers, as followers now, have been learning just who Jesus really is. And as we look at the text, we realize, like the disciples, ooh, Jesus is a lot bigger than we thought he was. And just what it will mean to follow him. And it's safe to say that both of these things have been hard for us to hear like it was hard for the original disciples to hear. First, it's been hard to consider what's going to happen to Jesus because he keeps telling us again and again since Mark 9 that he's going to be betrayed and die on a cross and then rise again. And we've kept telling him, no, I don't think, Jesus, you really know what's happening. That seems like a, maybe a dream you had or some sort of metaphor. We're not sure. And then second, it's been hard to consider our own frailty and potential to deny Jesus, to disassociate from Jesus, or then even more seriously, to betray Jesus. Jesus wants us to be aware, to be sober. And so last week we saw in chapter 13, he stressed a word to us. Remember he said, be on watch, be on your guard. And remember how many times in chapter 13, six times he's trying to get our attention. Be on guard, be aware. I'm being lovingly honest with you. Mark is showing us these last days of Jesus, but also introducing us, again, just what it means to follow him. He's not the only gospel writer. He does this, but it's certainly a focus of Mark. And in the past few weeks, weeks as we've walked through these passages for me, even though I've been in Mark like many of you have before, it's begged a question for me over and over. Given that my life has been changed by Jesus, and I want and still want to follow him, and I've heard again and again and know as best I can that it won't be easy. How do I do that? How do I follow Jesus when it gets hard? Anybody ever had that particular question? You may have it this morning. And that question gets at the core of things we discuss in terms we use, like what's it mean to be a disciple or in discipleship? What's spiritual formation look like with Jesus? That's a phrase we often use now. We want to grow in our spiritual, Holy Spirit, spiritual formation. And so as we ask that question and look at Scripture, we should be sure to note markers or signposts that show us, oh, this is what it's like. This is how we will do that. This is a good passage for us to know to give us help in our spiritual formation. And our passage this morning is one of those signposts. And so I want to use it to to ask and sort of answer that question. What's it look like to follow Jesus when it's hard? How can even the the march to the cross help us in our own spiritual formation? Mark 14 and 15, one scholar has a great phrase. "Is really the abandonment of Jesus. Both chapters, this arc of abandonment throughout the passages. We see it at the beginning of Mark 14. If you've been reading along first by the religious leaders in those first verses, we hear, oh, they decide to kill Jesus. It's this really stark phrase. Got all the clergy together, all the ordained people, and they decide we're gonna kill this guy. We have a meeting with all the dais and clergy Johnny and I and Corky on Tuesday. We renew our vows. And that would be a weird meeting if the Bishop got us all again, like, you know, there's somebody I think for the safety of the diocese and our people, we need to kill him. That'd be a bad meeting. So that's the beginning of Mark 14. And then it moves to this act of devotion. This woman literally anointing Jesus for his death with very expensive perfume. We get communion for the first time as instituted, and then there's several paragraphs where Jesus begins to teach about how we're gonna, we as his disciples, gonna blow it, that night even. He explains it to us, and then he experiences it in Mark 14. Now, we all deny that we're gonna do this. It says the disciples all are like, no, no, Jesus. And the most strenuous denier is Peter. Peter, our buddy, who can believe that you and I will do it. Because he says, even if they do, he believes you're going to blow it. But even in that belief about you, he cannot believe that he himself is going to do it. Which must have made for a really fun conversation Friday and Saturday evening later in Holy Week. We find in our passage, Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples, because Judas has already slipped out to go get the religious leaders and the guards, The 11 remaining disciples are back on the Mount of Olives in a particular place called Gethsemane, which is probably a walled garden of a friend of Jesus that they've been to before. And Jesus has brought them here for a singular purpose. And that purpose is to pray. He needs to pray. He needs to prepare. He needs to talk to his father. And he asks all the disciples to join him and they sort of create this three-layer set of prayer, first the eight stay out in some part of the garden to pray, then the three, Peter, James, and John, are invited by Jesus to go with him to pray, and then Jesus goes by, off by himself within earshot and eyesight of the other three to pray. Now these three, Peter, James, and John, if you remember Mark 10 and Mark Peter, uh, several parts of Mark with Peter, these three have all stressed very specifically to Jesus We are willing to bear the cup of suffering you're going to bear. We will not betray you. So Jesus very particularly brings them with him because they've said they could and to invite them into this experience with him. And then Jesus prays. Now that verb doesn't really do justice to what's happening inside of Jesus and vertically between he and his father at this point. He is agonizing. He is suffering. He is crying out. He's literally shaking and sweating and grieving and talking to God at the precipice of something no other human has or ever will face. He's staring into the deepest abyss any human has ever stared into. The literal translation is he is shuddering in distress. He's about to be both wholly and utterly separated from his father, this break in the Trinity that's never happened, and then to bear the consequences and wrath of God for all humanity's evil and sin. Utterly separated, utterly judged. Sin, we hear from the apostle Paul, it means death in every possible way, and Jesus is about to receive that death. We believe in a a theological doctrine called prevenient grace, which is the idea that God's active presence in people's lives surrounds us even if you don't sense the divine at work in your lives. For instance, even the most terrible sinner on earth will eat food today nurtured by rain and God's holy creative supply chain. Jesus is going to be stripped even of that. And these are the cups he's about to receive from his father. And so he's asking God, for help. He's not asking God to take it away, but he's asking, is there a different way that what you sent me here to accomplish can happen? Abba Father, let this cup pass for me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Three times he cries out, three times he returns to Peter, James, and John, hoping they're praying, how'd that go? Not so great, we heard Sonia read. Three times the disciples fall asleep. Remember again, the end of chapter 13, Jesus used that word guard six times. It's the same word he's saying to the disciples here when he goes back and wakes them up. Be on watch, be on guard. And after the third time, there's a huge scene change because you can see the torches making their way to the garden and the warriors and Judas will show up to betray him. And the darkest, darkest night of the soul anyone has ever experienced will continue. It's a a pregnant chapter, but as I read it this week, this is the paragraph that jumped out at me. Especially if we use this lens, what does this say about my own life with following Jesus, my own spiritual formation? And I wanna pull out five, real brief, specific things from this text for you and for me. First, you can follow Jesus and be asked to do something that is too hard for you to do. You can follow Jesus and literally be asked to do something that is just too hard for you to do. Many of us here have followed Jesus for a long time, even decades in the room. Could you raise your hand if you followed Jesus for, let's say, three decades? Just keep your hands up. Can you say four decades? This is not a comment on your age. Five decades. Think back, how many of you who've had your hands raised even for 10 days, but five decades, how many of you have had situations where following Jesus was more than you could handle? Could you put those back up for a second? Could everybody look around for a second? Lots of us, pretty much everybody. Not something like Jesus has here, but certainly harder than we could do. I can think of several. I reflected on a few this week. To be honest, there are a few too painful for me to consider very long. Because when I think about how I obeyed God, I know it was but for God, I wouldn't have done it. And it's hard to think about. It's subtly triggering. I'm like, I don't know if I could do that again is what it raises in me. Part of my own story with the Lord is that between my junior and senior year of college, I was not doing very well spiritually. And so I left school for a year to to reorient my life to God and to Jesus. And then I transferred schools and did my last year at another school. And I don't know how I did it. I don't. It was too hard. There were lots of implications, painful implications, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And I know God carried me through That decision, but there's about a two week set of crisis days for me, and I don't like thinking about those days. And I bet you all have very similar stories. And if you do, then we have a very small taste of what Jesus is going through here. He wants to obey his Father, but he's asking if there's any other way a way that is not so distressing. But he loves his Father enough to go through with this because. His Father loves you that much. Remember, the reason Jesus is going through this is because God so loved the world, and that world is you and me. On the one hand, that's a stunning amount of love. On the other hand, this Holy Week, as we continue to reflect in a Lenten way, you and I can remember, you you and I are doing that to him. That distress is, is from us. But if you follow him long enough, he will invite you into doing things out of God's greater love and for his father's greater glory than you and I are gonna be able to do. Second, to follow Jesus, then to do those things, to obey that way, you're gonna need others to walk with you. We have seen Jesus go off and pray in Mark other times, notably in the very first chapter after he has his first sort of public expression of his life as the Messiah in Mark with Peter and Peter's mother-in-law. He goes off, but usually he goes off alone and at night. Here he's going off at night, but he's taking the disciples with him. Usually they can't find him. Remember in chapter one, Peter says, looks and looks and looks and then finds himself. We've all been looking for you. This time Jesus says to Peter, hey, come here, I'm gonna go pray, come with me. Commentators generally attribute that invitation to two particular reasons. They feel like, one, Jesus is still discipling the disciples. He's teaching them, you will face hardship and decisions that will be too hard for you to do. To make and follow through with them, he's teaching them, you will need one another. Peter, you'll need James. James, you'll need Luke. Or excuse me, Luke, you'll need Matthew. Matthew, you'll need Simon the Zealot. He's teaching them they're going to need one another. But two, Jesus is doing it because he also needs help in his own intercession. Even Jesus, fully divine, is fully human here. And part of what it is to be fully human is to be in need occasionally. Being in need as a human is not a sin. It's a sign you're human and you're frail, finite, and apt to faint. Jesus here needs the disciples to pray. He's not just teaching them. It's interesting to read several commentators in this because you begin to feel or to see which commentators wrestle a bit with Jesus' humanity because some of them say, well, no, he didn't need them. He's just teaching them. He's you know like the great academic instructor right up to the cross. And I think, no, he's not sweating because he's not in need. He's sweating because he is in need. And we, we like to teach. We have taught Christ Church of Vienna. I have taught in this church that you are created in the image of a triune God. You need relationship. We've taught it from Genesis 1, right? It's your core part of who you are. And we teach it that way because it's part of creation. But here it is part of redemption and part of need. So what that says to you is you need one another. Jesus needed prayer and others for his full life of faith with God. Why would you and I think we wouldn't? To follow Jesus, you will need others to walk with you. Third, those others, even saints, even saints fail. Saints in Greek is, the word translated really means everybody. So this, all of us are saints. I don't know if you know that, but you're all a saint in the eyes of the New Testament. But here particularly, of course, these are apostolic saints, Peter, James, and John, and they blow it. How many times did they blow it? Three times. Now, it would be a little unkind not to be somewhat empathetic to the disciples. They've had a fairly intense week, right? They've been in the temple. That's been exhausting. They've watched all this confrontation. Jesus is saying things you and I don't really understand. We just found out one of us is gonna betray him. We don't really know what that means. Had the big Passover meal. And now we're out in a garden late at night the full stomach. And they're sleepy. They're tired. I would be sleepy or tired. Maybe these are the morning people disciples, right? Instead of the evening people. I got to figure fishermen, Peter, James, and John, they've been getting up early their whole lives. They're probably like, Jesus, could we go to bed and come back at five? Even 4.30, I'm good. I'm a morning disciple. Get Matthew. He throws parties, tax collector. He could pray at night. But they They fail. After making that sincere vow, we, I mean, James and John literally say we could handle the cup of suffering, which is the words Jesus is using with his dad there. But it begs an important question as you and I consider deep life with God. How does the failure in the private prayer space play out in our public areas for the disciples? How did them not praying at night or in the dark or early in the morning affect how they lived publicly for the next 24 hours? And then again, not just for them, but how does my failure in the private prayer space affect how my public life may not play out the way I want it to play out? Jesus had to make sure they were humbled enough to need the cross. They had to learn of their frailty just like you and I need to. But it's just a part of their story with Jesus, right? It's one night. They're gonna have a rough night and a rough weekend. Holy Saturday is gonna be worse, in fact, than Thursday night and Friday. But then in a few days, and then on Pentecost in a few weeks, wow, they're gonna be very different people. Because failure's not the end of their story, just like it's not the end of your story. And in your life of spiritual formation and following Jesus, you're going to blow it. But Peter, James, and John would say, Hey, let me tell you a story how I blew it. But then Jesus welcomed me back, like he welcomes you back. And then Jesus invited me into deeper life with him. And then you should hear what Jesus did through me all over. So they would say, Wake up, be on guard even after you drop the ball a time or two. Fourth, prayer and surrender then is the battle, not preparation for the battle. Prayer and surrender is the battle, not preparation for the battle. Do not undersell prayer. I think sometimes we think about prayer like it's stretching, right? Like you're just getting loose for the workout. Prayer is is the dead weight's. Prayer is putting on 45-pound plates on each end and then more 45-pound plates on each end if it's the situation you're in. Some of you know what you're like. You're like, you're maxing out spiritually with God. Like, I got six plates on each side. I do not know if I can pick this up. Prayer is not going, I'll get ready for that. Prayer is doing that. Jesus here is working out with God his Father into a deep, obedient response. He goes three times. It's not like they haven't talked about this before. Jesus has known for years this moment was coming. And he's crying out to his father with this unbelievably intimate communication. Abba is what you, an intimate phrase, what you use with your dad. The breakthrough, of course, is in the nevertheless, right? Nevertheless, not in my will, but thine be done. It takes him time to get there. Isn't that interesting? He didn't go away one time. And I know some of you have been one, two, three, 17, 27, 87 times with God on things. I have too. Because you have experienced and you know, Lord, I don't want my will, but I still want my will. <laughs> Those are heavy words. This might be the most significant sentence in history. This Not my will, but thine be done. I was thinking this week, what would be more significant? I I couldn't come up with one. Not my will, but thine be done. Without this sentence in prayer, without this heart's cry to God, all we have in the gospel story is creation, fall, and then shoot. Right, you hear us say, the gospel story is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that's the narrative you and I believe in, that's what's touched your life, that's every movie we watch, that's every love story you see. Without this sentence, it's just creation fallen. Oh, darn, now life's hard. Because redemption never happens. Jesus doesn't go to the cross. This is a great quote by a scholar named RT France. God has a will which is to be accepted rather than altered by prayer. Prayer so understood Consists not in changing God's mind, but in finding our own alignment with God's will. Prayer so understood consists not in changing God's mind, but in finding our own alignment with God's will. To, to use an illustration that our friend and brother Byron Lamb could do way better than I could because he's a chiropractor and I'm not, but this is, if you've been to a chiropractor, Jesus is aligning his will like a chiropractor aligns your spine with the Lord's way, the Lord's plumb line. Crack, 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 crack. Prayer and surrender is the battle. It's the dead lifting with God. It's not stretching or preparation for the battle. Then the last thing from this passage for this morning. If you and I want deeper life with the God of the universe who loves us, deeper spiritual formation, then we have to go to the garden There's no deeper life with God without going to the garden occasionally on the things He's calling you to go to. I wish I had an easier way to say that, but it just isn't the story of Scripture. It's not the story of Jesus, and it's not the story of church history. I'm sure it's not the story of those of you in this room. If we all gathered up and began to share the ways God has worked through those places where we had to to do something and respond to God in a place that we're all like, "This is just too hard." I bet we'd all say, you know, but at that place, I know my life with God was was enriched and deepened in a way it wouldn't have been without it. These these moments, like it is for Jesus, are the opportunity for deeper intimacy with God, God, his father. To ignore the garden is to ignore the moment and the opportunity. We get to offer ourselves, Lord, here I am. I can't make it, I can't do it. Now, the beauty is, Jesus has given you and I the vocabulary for those moments. In that same sentence, Abba, Father, not my will but thine be done. What is really great, and this is how I want to close, and then we'll pray in a second, is that the way the early church understood this story and then took those words and gave it to one another as the way to pray themselves in those moments. So if you know Paul, you know both in Romans and in Galatians, he, he teaches the early church to call out to God and call him Abba, Father. That was an unheard of way to, to interact or, or describe God at that time. It was way too intimate. Jesus' words, again, it's a private, the most private moment Jesus could have had with his father. The early church has said, no, now we are like Jesus. And so we can also say, to God, Abba, Father. We're gonna say it as the comfortable words during the absolution this morning from Galatians. But It was so important, Paul told them it twice, both to Romans, the church in Rome, and to the church in Galatia. Abba, Father, I, your daughter, am not able to do this. Please help me. Abba, Father, I, your son, like your son, am crying out, I know my will is not in alignment with you, but I want it to be. Or I know my will is in alignment and I don't want it to be, but all I can do is cry out, Abba, Father, please help me. When you read through Galatians 4 sometime or you read through Romans 8 and you see those, it should be shining lights. Holy smoke, that's what Jesus said. Paul's telling me I can use that same sentence when I talk to God and life's too hard. Paul's not just telling you you can. Paul's telling you, you should. Please do. Because God is inviting you to. So we're gonna go in prayer as we finish now. And I'm just gonna give a few silent moments before I pray to just let you offer up there in your space, in your seat. Maybe there's something going on. You could say it. Silently, you could say it aloud. You know the particular situations that you're in. We're all in here together, and so we'll offer up one another. But let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the humility of Peter and James and John to tell this story that you invited them into so we have such an intimate view of what it was like for Jesus before the cross. Again and again, the gospel writers repeat this story because those men were willing to say, look, we heard Jesus and we did blow it three times, but we also kept following him, and he changed our life and the world. Thank you, Father, for love that big. Thank you, Jesus, for praying this way and letting us know it's how you talk to your Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching us we can do it too. So again, I lift up my friends and brothers and sisters here. You know, If anybody here this morning is particularly looking at something in a garden where it's like, it's just too hard, they know it's too hard. But they can at least cry, Abba, Father. We, on their behalf, cry with them and for them. And we lift up one another. And ask that you would, at the end of this service, send us out with the awareness of what it means to be freed from being aligned with you and to be sent into the world as your children, the same way you looked at Jesus. It's stunning, stunning news. In your holy name, amen.